Hey, miserable bitches! We are back with another episode of Misery Manor. Except this time it's just going to be me because Emily has COVID. So it's just going to be me sitting here in this closet entertaining myself and you all today. And I hope that's okay. I feel like it is. But before I get started, make sure you leave your manners at the door. Hola, como estas? It's just me sitting here in the closet because, like I said, Emily has COVID. The girl somehow managed to go three years without getting it, and now she has it. So she's at home recovering, so send her all of your good vibes, your positive energy. Um, I would share her address so that you can send her some stuff, but I won't do that. Um, but yeah, she has COVID. So today you're just going to be getting me and I'm literally sitting here in this closet. And I know a lot of you are probably like, why do they record in a closet? Well, the clothes kind of make like a sound barrier to just get out echoes that can happen if we record in like a kitchen or like a dining room. Um, so the closet kind of just keeps all the sounds in and it just sounds a lot better, I think. Um, so yeah, I'm just sitting here in a closet with all this equipment by myself with my laptop. So I am going to deliver you, hopefully, a badass episode. But I will be talking to myself, so there might not be much commentary other than myself. All my friends here in Houston were busy today. Um, I tried to get somebody to kind of be like a guest, but it didn't work out. So it's just me today. But before I get started, um, I just want to say real quickly, I know we, we say this every episode, but... Um, if you want to be a Patreon, if you want to go to our merch store, or if you want to um, see like where all of our episodes, um, you can find all of our episodes in our email. Go to our Instagram at Misery Manor Podcast and click that link tree in our bio and all of those sites will pop up. If you become a Patreon, you get exclusive episodes that you cannot hear anywhere else. Some are scary, some are funny, some are creepy, some are like, what the fuck? But yeah, all that good stuff is in there. So I encourage you to become a Patreon. Um, we thank you time and time again for the support um, and all the encouragement that you give us. But being a Patreon really, really, really does help us. And we thank you so, so much. Um, but I'm also putting these links now in the bios on, you can, like on the episodes when they upload to Spotify or Apple or whatever, you can see those links in there too. So Check that out if you want to. If not, just continue to do what you're doing and listening on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else. All right, cool. So enough with that. Let's get into this case. This case is going to be called The Waterbed Murderer. Yup, The Waterbed Murderer. And this involves an eight-year-old girl um, who was beaten, murdered, and hidden under a waterbed. So this story is going to involve a girl named Maddie Ray Clinton, Clifton. And like I said, she was eight years old at the time of this murder. And it takes place um, November of 1998. So Maddie was born June 17th, 1990 to parents Sheila and Steve 
and she had an older sister named Jessica. Now, Maddie was considered a tomboy. She loved all sports. She loved being active. She loved baseball. She loved golf. She loved soccer. She loved football. You name it, she wanted to be involved. Um, she was a super tough kid because of this. She was like tough as nails and typically would hang around and play with like guys as opposed to girls. So naturally, this just made her really tough. Um, that's what everyone said. She was kind of like a badass. Like one minute she would be playing football and then the next she would be seen at like ballet class or she would be taking piano classes. Um, she was also considered very vibrant. She was well-rounded. Sounds like she's like one of the most badass eight-year-olds besides me and opposite of Emily. I'll just roast her from time and time since she's not here. Not that she could help it. So Maddie and her family lived in this cute little cul-de-sac in a very safe neighborhood in Jacksonville, Florida. So if you're not very familiar with what a cul-de-sac is, I'm sure many of you are, but in case you're not, let me explain. It's kind of like a dead end to a road, to a street. So it's like a little round circle, like a little roundabout filled with houses. I even remember growing up, we would always hang out in the cul-de-sac, all of the, um, you know, parents could kind of look out their window and see all of us playing in the little circle drive. Um, there was like a basketball court also, or basketball hoop, all sorts of stuff um, in that cul-de-sac. So kind of like that, this is where Maddie and all of her friends could be seen um, playing from time to time. So on November 3rd, 1998, which was election day, Maddie comes home from school and decides that she's going to practice her piano. So her mother left the house real quickly to go vote, but returned shortly after. So it's a super normal day when all of a sudden a guy by the name of Larry Grissom comes to the family's house and knocks on the door. So Maddie gets up from her piano and she screams out to her family, I got the door. It's probably one of my friends. So Maddie opens the door. Hey, Larry. He says, hey, Maddie, do you want to go punt some golf balls? Maddie tells him, yeah, sounds good. I just finished up my piano practice. Let me go tell my parents. I'll be right back. So Maddie runs to tell her mom, 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 I'm going to go um, play golf with Larry. Um, and her mom's just like, okay, yeah, just make sure you're home for dinner. Now, I don't, I didn't know what punt a golf ball means, but basically they're just like going in this open field and just like hitting golf balls. They're not actually going to the golf course to play golf. So it seems harmless, right? So let me tell you something. The weird part is Larry is not her age. He isn't even near her age. Larry is 45 years old. So like, who is he? You might be asking. He just lives next door to the family. and was just like a friendly neighbor that enjoyed hanging out with Maddie. So Maddie runs out of the door with Larry and off they go to play some golf. However, Maddie comes home in about like an hour or so. Um, and she runs in the front door and she's like, mom, 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 I need some more golf balls. We ran out. Do you have any more? And her mom's like, yeah, honey, let me get some for you. Are you having fun? Maddie responds, yes, ma'am. It's so much fun. I will be back for dinner. I love you. Little did her mother know that that would be the last time that she sees or speaks to her daughter ever again. So 620 comes around and Sheila and Maddie, Sheila, who's Maddie's mom, comes, becomes worried because Maddie is still not home. And this is not like Maddie at all. She walks out of the front door and calls out, Maddie, Jessica, time to come home. Dinner's ready. So typically the girls would hear this because they were usually just like a few houses down. And they'd be like, oh, my mom's calling me for dinner. I got to go. Bye. And they would usually just run home immediately. So she called out for her kids and the older sister, Jessica, was just playing um, at the next door neighbors and she ran in almost immediately, but she was by herself. And typically the sisters would be hanging out together and would like walk into the home together. But this time Jessica was all alone. 
So her mother's like, where's Maddie? Have you seen her? And Jessica responds, I don't know. I haven't seen Maddie in a while. I thought she was home, honestly. And Sheila's like, what? What do you mean? No, Maddie went to go play with her friends like a few hours ago. And Jessica responded, I don't know. Maybe she's playing in someone's house and just lost track of time. So her mom responds, I don't know, Jessica. This is not like Maddie at all. We need to go find her. Um, And she notices that her worrying is kind of starting to concern Jessica. So she's like, okay, it's okay. Everybody stay calm. And they just decide to go door to door um, to find Maddie. So they're like going up to each of the houses and they're knocking on the door. Knock, knock, knock. You know, good evening. Is my daughter Maddie here by chance? And they would say, no, 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 she's not. I haven't seen her. I'm so sorry. And they would just continue to go door to door asking if any of the neighbors have seen their daughter or seen her daughter. So they're in the streets of this neighborhood screaming Maddie's name. They're like, Maddie, Maddie, time to come home. And eventually the whole neighborhood starts helping them um, search for her. Because like I said, this is a very tight niche neighborhood. So it's like all hands are on deck to find little Maddie. And like I said, Maddie grew up hanging out with the majority of the children in this neighborhood. So this hit home for a lot of people. Everybody wanted to find out where Maddie was. So they started searching high and low. They are looking in the woods. They're looking in people's backyards. Some are continuing to knock on the neighbor's door, asking if they've seen Maddie. So hours continue to pass, and the sun is steadily going down with no signs or no clues as to where Maddie could be. So around 9 p.m. that night, Maddie's mother calls 911 and reports her daughter missing. So the police obviously ask her, ma'am, please describe to me the events leading up to Maddie's disappearance. And she began to say, you know, Maddie came from, from home from school while she was practicing the piano. One of our neighbors, Larry, asked Maddie if she wanted to hit some golf balls with him. So the two left to play some golf. And shortly after leaving, Maddie did come home to the house to ask me if we had any more golf balls and left. And I just told her to be home before dinner. And that's the last I saw her. And that is unlike her. So just like that, the police immediately head over to Larry Grissom's home to demand answers. They knocked on the door and he answers, you know, he's like, hello, officers, how can I help you? And they said, hey, we are looking for Maddie. She is missing. And you were the last person she was with. Is she still here? And he's like, man, no, she's not. She left to go get more golf balls and she never returned. So the police are obviously very suspicious about this and they searched Larry's home, but they found not one clue of Maddie even being there. So meanwhile, in the neighborhood, it was still a full-on search. Everybody was involved. Jessica, Maddie's older sister, was riding around on her bike calling Maddie's name. She's like, Maddie, Maddie, where are you? Maddie, Maddie. Even a lot of the neighborhood kids were still helping out. And it was dark at this time. So they loved Maddie. All of them were used to playing with her either at school or around the neighborhood. One of the kids helping was Josh Phillips, and he was a 14-year-old boy who lived next door to Maddie's family. Josh was particularly close with Maddie, apparently, which, you know, I think is a little weird because he's 14 and she's 8, and they would hang out kind of often. But he's searching for her. Everybody's searching for her. Like I said, all hands on deck. So the search continues to go on for hours and hours and hours. But like I said, at this point, it is way too dark. It is getting way too late and everybody is exhausted. So everybody just goes back home. They go to sleep and they just decide to continue the search the following morning. So the sheriff department, the next day, they're like, 
we are going to basically go all out for you on this because there is an eight-year-old girl missing in this neighborhood. And if anything is going to cause like a suburban panic, it is this. And that is not what they wanted. So they kind of started freaking out. They're also going door to door, not only in Maddie's neighborhood, but they're going to the surrounding subdivisions as well. And they're asking everybody they come in contact with, hey, where were you last night? What were you doing around this time? Do you know who this girl is? And they would show a picture of Maddie and they were like, can we search your house? So they were searching everybody's house in the neighborhood and the nearby neighborhood all over. So most of the people were like, yeah, I mean, obviously we know her. She's our neighbor, but we were, we were already home. We were getting dinner ready. You are more than welcome to come in and search our house, but we have no clue where Maddie is. So the police continue and continue to search the houses, but they are not coming up with any clues at all. So the police are like, you know what? We need to circle back to Larry Grissom. They're, they're like, why was he playing golf with an eight-year-old to begin with if he's 45? Does he like not have friends his own age? This is kind of weird. And that's what they were really honing in on. Why is a 45-year-old playing with an eight-year-old? And he is the last person that they know of that saw her. So the police called him, called him in for further questioning, and they immediately start interviewing him as well as talking to um, neighborhood families about him. And almost all of the neighborhood people said that they really liked, um, they really liked him as a person, and he really liked hanging out with children just in general. They would see him oftentimes playing games with the kids, walking down the street with the kids, um, playing sports with them. If you ask me, it's a little fucking creepy. Um, but the neighborhood people kind of thought it was normal. They were just like, oh yeah, he liked kids. He was always playing with them, entertaining them. Um, seems harmless. So the police did do a search into his background and found that Larry Grissom did actually have a record. He did have a criminal record. He had a lot of fucking DUIs and some auto thefts. There were two counts of sexual battery Both of those charges were dropped, however, um, but there was no indication that it was against a child by any means. So they didn't really hold this against him, but it was still a very interesting find. Like, why is a guy who has a shit ton of DUIs hanging out with children? I don't get it. So anyways, so when they asked him to retell the police about the events of the evening, Larry was like, what do you mean? We were simply just playing golf together at my house. In between me and my neighbor's home, we have like this little patch of land and that's where we would go to like hit golf balls. Um, He was like, I knew Maddie liked sports, so I invited her over to play with me. Harmless. When we were playing golf, we were out in the open. Any of the neighbors could have just stuck their head out of the window of their door of their backyard and they could have seen us just out there in the open. It was not fenced in. I was not fenced in my yard with her. I was very well aware of my surroundings, as was she. And there was houses all around us. My house was actually only a few doors down from Maddie's house. So the police say, so Maddie went to go back to get some more golf balls and she never came back. Don't you think that's kind of weird? And Larry was like, well, no, because I mean, it was getting close to dinner time. She told me that she needed to be back home for dinner. The sun was um, going down um, when she retrieved more golf balls. So I just assumed when she got home, her family was like, no, you're not getting more golf balls. It's time for dinner. And that's why I didn't see her. So the police take this information, but they are still sold on the idea that Larry had something to do with her disappearance. So they were like, okay, Larry, we are going to need you to take a polygraph test because we don't really trust your story. And Larry's like, of course, officer, whatever you need. Well, he takes the polygraph test and the results are in. 
And they're like, I think we found our guy because he failed miserably. So they go back to Larry's house and they search it nine times, nine more times because of all of the suspicious circumstances. So after nine more home searches and 20 more separate interviews, there are zero clues. None. Zilch. Nada. So Larry even was like, look, I'll give you my DNA. So he gave his DNA willingly. um, And he also had a very convincing alibi for the rest of the night. So no matter how much the police wanted to wanted this to be Larry Grissom, they cannot find they could not find a damn thing to tie it to him. So they're like at a loss. They don't know what the fuck to do. So the police had to be stationed all around the suburban neighborhood because they didn't know if the person who kidnapped or killed Maddie was coming after the family in particular, or was it children being targeted? Was Maddie's um, older sister Jessica next? Everybody was just super uneasy. Therefore, police were stationed all throughout this neighborhood. So these huge searches begin to happen. And when I say huge, I'm talking like huge. Everyone in town was searching for Maddie, They searched the nearby woods, the swamps. They even got cadaver dogs sniffing all around the neighbors' houses. They even had the U.S. Army Reserve come in and conduct a hard search, which entailed them going through and in manholes and culverts to see if she had fallen into the manhole somehow or was, like, stepped in there. So they were going all out. It was super, super, super detailed and very intense. They even start posting um, yellow ribbons everywhere to symbolize they were looking for Maddie. The whole community was rallying together, putting up her posters everywhere, but there were still no leads. The whole town of Jacksonville was talking about Maddie and where she could possibly be. So the Cliftons were not going to give up anytime soon. They knew they needed to take it up a notch. So the Cliftons decided to go on this huge press tour where they begged on national television to get Maddie back. They even offered a $50,000 reward for anyone that would lead her to coming back home. They said that they could even consider doubling it if it could get cleared. They just wanted her back home. Maddie's mother said, Maddie... If you were out there and you can hear us, we are ready for you to come home. She also said, Maddie is a very, very strong girl. She is full of love. Maddie, please come home. We miss you so much. So the family had about 10 billboards up for Maddie. They even had t-shirts made. People were wearing t-shirts all over the town with Maddie's face on it. People were passing out flyers. They were standing at the four-way stops. Um, The family was doing interviews with all these media outlets. They were getting the word out every way possible. So remember the 14-year-old kid that I said that was friends with Maddie? Um, His name is Josh Phillips. So let's circle back to him now. Let's talk about him. So about a week after she went missing, Melissa Phillips, who is Josh Phillips' mother, was getting ready to go to work one day. And Josh had just left for school. So she was incredibly frustrated that her lazy-ass 14-year-old son did not clean his room all week. So she said to him, Josh, you need to clean your damn room. It is so disgusting. How do you live like this? It smells horrible. It is an absolute mess. What is wrong with you? You need to clean your damn room. So now she said this time it was particularly very like pungent odor. And it's not something that she had ever smelled in her entire life. However, Josh did have three pet birds in his room. So, you know, pets can make a lot of nasty smells, especially birds. I've had chickens in the past. and 
they stink. I don't think he had chickens in his room, but he did have like parakeets or parrots or something. So his mother just thought that maybe he wasn't cleaning up after the pets. Who knows? So when Josh left for school for the day, Melissa rolled up her sleeves and she went into Josh's room armed and ready. She brought trash bags. She brought gloves, Lysol, Febreze, mops, brooms, you name it. She was like, I'm just going to do it for him while he's gone. He doesn't know how to clean his room properly. And the smell is starting to permeate through the entire house. And she just couldn't take it. So Melissa starts deep cleaning the shit out of the room. And she notices a damp spot on the floor on the corner of his bed. And she's like wearing socks. So it kind of like bleeds through her socks. And she's like, what the heck is this from? But this isn't too alarming for her because Josh does have a waterbed which that is not a thing anymore. I always wanted a waterbed growing up. I remember my mom's friend had one and I would just lay on it and it felt like you were laying on someone's fat, like someone's fat belly. I just loved it and I wanted one. So Josh had one. So she wasn't alarmed. She thought maybe the waterbed was just like leaking. So she's like, fucking great. His waterbed is leaking. So she thought, okay, well, this makes sense. If the bed is leaking, maybe the water inside the waterbed has been leaking, causing mildew or mold. And that's where the smell is coming from. So she touched the corner of the mattress and it is absolutely soaked. So the bed was actually on like a box spring and there was like a little bit of a gap. And then there was the waterbed. So I don't really know if I'm explaining this well. So basically the waterbed was just not sitting there on the ground. There was a box spring and then like a little bit of gap. And then the waterbed was on top and it didn't fit nicely on top of it. So there was like a little space in between. If that makes sense. It's kind of hard to, I don't know. But yeah, you get it. So box spring, space, waterbed, and then there was like a bed frame around it. So Josh's mom lifts up the mattress and she sees that there's like a little white sock underneath the waterbed mattress, like with a bunch of trash. And she's like, what the heck? How does he even get socks under here? Like what the wrong, what is wrong with teenage boys? So she puts her hand down there to pick up the trash and she tries to pull on this white sock so she can throw it into the hamper because she's about to do like the laundry. So she's like pulling on the sock. It won't come up. It's stuck. So she starts yanking it harder and it still won't come up. So um, that's when she noticed some black electrical tape that was kind of holding part of the bed frame together what she thought was kind of weird because the bed frame was not broken. So she's thinking, this is odd. Why does he need tape? Maybe he put tape on it because the bed was like leaking and he didn't want to, you know, tell me and he didn't, he just thought he was fixing the leak on his own. So she pulls the tape away and that's when she grabs the sock, but she feels something else. So Melissa lifts up the mattress again and out of the blue, two feet popped out. So Melissa said she couldn't believe what she saw, but she knew exactly what she had found. She had just found the body of the missing little girl, Maddie, underneath her son's bed. So according to the Tampa Bay Times in 1988, the Duval County Sheriff, Nate Glover, said that Maddie's body was securely, securely entombed in the casement of the waterbed. So his mom is panicking. She's freaking out. She immediately calls her husband who is at work and she leaves a frantic as fuck voicemail. She's like, please come home. It's an emergency. Please come home. I need you now. Come home. Come home. I don't know if it was quite like that, but you get it. 
So he obviously doesn't come home immediately because he's like preoccupied at work. So anxious as fuck, Melissa immediately starts running. She runs down the stairs and she runs to the police officer who's right outside because remember they're still patrolling this entire neighborhood. So the cop that she ran into um, was actually one of the cops that was on surveillance duty. So this cop see her sees her running out of the house crying um, like a mess, like bawling her eyes out, can barely speak. She comes up to him and she just keeps screaming, help me, you need to come into my house, you need to come to my house, I found something in my house and you need to come see it, please, 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 it's an emergency. So he's like, listen, I'm on surveillance duty. Like, what are you dealing with? I need to call backup. I can't leave my spot. She's like, no, 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 no. You do not understand. You need to come into my house right now, please. And he looks at her dead in the eyes and she says, I found the dead body of I think who I think is Maddie underneath my son's bed. So he obviously is concerned as fuck and calls for backup. They arrived very quickly And together, three detectives went into the house and they started looking and she immediately pointed them over to Josh's room and she had the most concerned and frightened look on her face. So right when they opened the door, the police immediately smelled the horrendous smell. So Melissa kept pointing at the waterbed and she's like, look under the bed, look under the bed. I can't do this. I got to go. I can't watch this. And she like leaves. So they went over to the bed and she lifted up and they lifted up the waterbed and immediately they could clearly see two little feet in the corner wearing the two little white socks. So they call out for her and they're like, ma'am, where is your son? And she said, I think he's on the bus to school if he's not already at school. So it was like go time. So the cops immediately get into the car and they rush to Josh's school, which is, so he attended a school called A. Philip Randolph Academies of Technology. And they pulled him out immediately and arrested him. Josh's dad came home. He sees cop cars everywhere in front of his house now instead of Maddie Clifton's house. And he's confused and concerned, especially after the voicemail he got from his wife. So Melissa said that she kept looking over up the Clifton's house thinking, as of right now, they still have hope. But I already know that she's dead. Their baby is dead because of my son. So the police go to the Clifton's house. They knock on the door. They sit them down to tell them the horrible, horrible, horrible news. The family immediately knew that it was going to be bad because they had seen police in and out of that street. And when they knocked on the door, the faces of the police officers just gave it away that it was going to be bad news. So when they told them, the family immediately started to cry and hug each other. And they looked up and said, where did you find her? And the police said, we found her across the street at the Phillips residence. So let's get into more history on Josh Phillips, who is now the murderer or suspect to be the murderer. So Josh Phillips, his full name is Joshua Earl Patrick Phillips, and he was the only child to Steve and Melissa Phillips. Josh did have half siblings, but they weren't living in the house at this time. So he was really kind of just like an only child. And as a baby, everyone said that he was super happy, literally always smiling, just active as can be. And they said he was very curious. The family had moved a couple times, but Josh made friends very easily. The only issue was that Steve, um, his father, was a bit of an alcoholic and was incredibly strict. Now, I couldn't find any definitive evidence that there was any type of like physical abuse or anything like that. 
but it seems like there was some emotional and verbal abuse, especially if Steve like came home from drinking. He might be a little bit too harsh or too strict to Josh, um, but that's all hearsay. So Josh claims that one time he walked in into his dad's room while he was screaming at his mother. And right when he had walked in on that, his dad's fist was immediately going through a wall. So that's how furious he was. So he was like punching walls and shit. So at a young age, Josh saw his dad punch a hole through the wall. And ever since then, he was completely terrified of his own dad and never knew what to do around him. So... Josh was just kind of like a normal guy at school. Some reports said he was very popular and well-liked, and some other reports described him as being kind of a loner. But for the most part, he was just kind of like your average 14-year-old guy. He was not considered rebellious. He was just kind of normal. Um, A lot of reports said he was kind of like a B student, made Bs and Cs in school, so kind of just there. Now, Maddie's parents already knew about him and actually had forbidden him from entering their house ever, ever, ever again. Now, why would parents do that to a 14-year-old, you might ask? Well, that is because one day they came home and they found Josh Phillips in Jessica's room. So you're thinking, okay, this is like a romance situation. This is like a forbidden romance, kind of like Romeo and Juliet. Nope. Jessica was not even home. He was not invited in. He had snuck into their house and he had stolen a photo of Jessica out of one of her picture frames and she was in her gymnastics leotard doing a backbend. And this is actually one month prior to the murder. There are several reports that say that Josh had a infatuation with Jessica. Now, at the time, they didn't know that he had stolen the photo, and later, the police found it taped to his headboard, and it was, like, covered up with pillows and stuff. So, Josh kind of had this crazy obsession with Jessica, the 11-year-old, which I find very, very, very odd. So, on another occasion, um, the Clifton's grandma had overheard Josh talking about sex in front of the two young girls, and the grandma overheard this and was like, Josh... Leave our house immediately. You are never to come back again. What is wrong with you? You cannot talk about that kind of stuff in front of these girls. Get out. She had even told Josh's parents about what happened. And they also banned him from playing with them because they were like, we don't want this trouble, Josh. Just play with people your own age. You don't need to be friends with them. It's fine. Just stay here and don't ever go over there again. But eventually, of course, both sides of the family just kind of loosened up because they're just kids. So it seemed like Maddie's parents probably thought it was a little bit harsh to be like, look, you can never come over here again because he was 14. Mistakes happen. So they didn't really make those rules like a deal breaker. Like if you if you go over there again, your ass is grass. So I think the kids were just kind of like, oh, it'll die out. So. Investigators did find some very, very, very alarming things on Josh's computer. So they found violent sexual graphic porn as well as child porn in his room. Now, allegedly, he would even break into the Clifton's house on multiple different occasions to steal pictures of Jessica, specifically in her gymnastics uniform. So he stole that one photo, but apparently he was going back in on multiple different occasions to steal more and more photos. There are even some reports say that he had made small holes in the wall where there were crawl spaces and he would peer into Jessica's room because they were able to find some holes in the crawl spaces that would be able to let somebody look into Jessica's room. 
So when the cops show up to the school and they arrest Josh, oddly enough, he just kind of starts admitting to everything. His parents went into the room, the interrogation room with Josh while he was being questioned. And his dad was like, look, son, you have to tell them everything. Like you have to tell the police what happened to Maddie. Every single thing that happened. So Josh is like, okay, I can do that. Let's start with the day of the murder. So Josh said that Maddie wanted to come over to his house because she wanted to play baseball with him. But Josh said that he had a, quote, 22-item long list of chores that he had to do before he could do anything. So he was like, sorry, Maddie, I can't play with you. I have a lot of chores to do. So they were able to verify, investigators were able to verify that from 4.22 to 4.57 p.m., that Josh was browsing various pornography sites, many of them involving graphic torture. So like BDSM, but they said like very, very, very intense, like super graphic, like choking out and beating up and like blood and like whips and like all sorts of shit like that. So that's what they were able to find on his computer. So, and that's from 422 to 457. So at 515, that Josh uh, went outside to finish his chore list. He was like, oh shit, well, I guess I got to finish what I was doing. So he started breaking the leaves. Now remember, this is just what Josh is saying. So he claims that Maddie came over and was like, Josh, Josh, I want to play baseball. Let's play baseball. So this like actually does match up with the timeline uh, where they were saying he went to go, she went to go get golf balls, but instead of getting golf balls, she went to Josh's house instead of going back to Larry Grissom. So these times are matching up to Larry Grissom's story. Um, so it's pretty spot on as of right now. So Josh said after Maddie begged and begged and begged to play, he was like, okay, okay, fine. We can play baseball in my backyard, but just until my dad comes home. But like once he comes home, you have to leave because I don't want to get in trouble. Remember, I'm not supposed to be hanging out with you. So he's a little bit nervous to be hanging out with her. Again, he's scared shitless of his father. So needless to say, Josh and Maddie go into his backyard. They pick up a baseball and a bat and Josh starts hitting the baseball at Maddie to catch. So Josh's backyard, though, is not very big at all. So, like, they had little to no room to even play. So, like I said, Josh has his bat, and he did like to mention that he is a strong swinger. So, Josh claims he threw a baseball up and swung the bat to hit the ball, and the ball went flying and hit Maddie directly on her head um, near her left eye. And she had this huge, nasty, bloody mark on her forehead and her eye. And she like fell down to the ground. She started screaming bloody fucking murder. And there's like blood everywhere. And she is crying hysterically. So Josh gets freaked out because he's like, oh my God, my dad's about to come home. Maddie's hurt. He's going to be so mad. She's not supposed to be here. And now she's bloody and she's screaming. I knew I shouldn't have played with her. So Josh, weirdly enough, said his first reaction was just to clean the blood off the ball. So he went inside and cleaned off the baseball. And then he came back outside and Maddie is laying on the ground and she is screaming and she's bleeding all over the place. So Josh said he didn't know what else to do, but to drag her into the house and up the stairs. And he said he was so scared of his dad that he just put his hand over Maddie's mouth to tell her to stop crying, which only made it worse because she is terrified. So this made her start screaming and fighting and kicking and punching more and more, only making matters worse. 
There's blood everywhere. She is loud as hell. And Josh is freaking freaking out. And he's like pacing around his room. He's like, what do I do? What do I do? And he's like, shut up, Maddie, shut up. And she's not being quiet. So in an effort to make her shut up, he said he grabbed his baseball bat and he just started hitting her upside the head with it over and over again. But Maddie still kept screaming. She's trying to get away from him. She's crying. And Josh just said he continued to bash her on the head with the baseball bat until all of a sudden, the crying and the screaming stopped. However, Maddie was still alive because instead of screaming and crying, she was just whimpering and moaning. And Josh thought to himself, I don't know, I think I need to finish her off. So Josh went and grabbed his pocket knife, stood over Maddie's body, and stabbed her twice in the neck. So that all the whimpering, all the moaning, it stopped. It was silence. So Josh was like, oh my gosh, what do I do with her body? She's dead. So he opened up the side panel of his bed frame and sticks her body in between the box spring and the waterbed, kind of like a sandwich. Shortly after, his dad returns home. Son, did you finish your chores? And he replies, yes, father. And he goes downstairs to talk to his dad. However, he said as he's talking to his father, he starts to hear something. And he's like, what is that sound? He runs back into his room and notices that there are sounds coming from underneath the waterbed. And it's Maddie. She's crying again. She's moaning. She's whimpering. She's kind of squirming. Oh, like just that imagery like gives me the chill bumps to just know like in what horrible horrible feeling does that father have now like knowing that there's Maddie's body was up there while he was home so just horrible so Josh runs up there and he hears Maddie under his bed she was moving a little bit and she was moaning and she was whimpering and she was still alive so he pulled her back out, grabbed that knife again, and stabbed her nine times in the chest until she stopped crying, and he was certain that she was done. And he put her back underneath the bed, and he pushed her in with his feet. He even said in his interview, quote, I pushed her in with my feet because, like, you know, I didn't want blood everywhere, I guess. So around 535, um... Josh's mom comes home and they all eat dinner together as a family. And that was Josh's story. So the police listen. They take it all in. They're like, okay, okay, maybe, maybe your story makes sense in theory. But we need to ask you a very important question, Josh. Why was Maddie naked from the waist down? Josh responded, well, remember when I said I was dragging her up the stairs into my room? Well, her shorts and her underwear fell off while I was dragging her. They got caught on the stairs and just like slid off. Now, what's even crazier is that earlier in their in the interview, they asked, "Why were her shoes on? Like, cause she, or where were her shoes? Where were her shoes?" And Josh claimed that he took her shoes off when he was pushing her into the waterbed. So, if Josh's story and timeline is correct, that would mean that Maddie's shorts and like her underwear would have to have slid off over the shoes when he was dragging her up the stairs so the police were like no no this story is not adding up and also just to mention maddie's shirt was pulled up over her chest and there were no stab wounds in the fabric of her shirt which means her shirt was pulled up 
as he was stabbing her. Because remember, she had nine stab wounds to the chest, none of which went through the material of her shirt. So police are taking all of this in and they're starting to wonder if any sexual assaults occurred. Because remember, that's just very, she doesn't have her panties and her shorts on. Her shirt was pulled up and they're also finding all of this crazy graphic porn on his computer. They're finding pictures of Jessica. They're finding all sorts of creepy stuff. And they're like, this is just sounding like a sexual assault case. So investigators did find semen. And it was Josh's semen. But here's the thing, though. They couldn't directly, definitively say that he assaulted her because he was watching porn prior to Maddie coming over. So it could have been that he had ejaculated after watching porn and went on to hang out with Maddie and somehow there was like a transfer of semen. Oh, I thought I would never say ejaculated again after the last episode, but there it is again. So there wasn't any semen in her, but it was in the area of her. Um, so they just thought, you know, maybe he was jerking one out while he was watching this nasty ass porn. Then Maddie came over and that's how the semen got on her. So after all this happened, like I said, his parents get home, they eat dinner together as a family. And as they're finishing up, Miss Clinton, Clifton was like already going door to door screaming for Maddie. You know, she's like frantic. Have you seen Maddie? But they let her know, no, Melissa, we, we don't know where she is, but we can help search. So Josh's dad turned to um, Josh and was like, son, you need to go help look for Maddie with everyone else. Grab your flashlight and go, go find her. So he grabbed his flashlight and just went around pretending to look for Maddie, even though he damn well knew that Maddie was dead and her body was underneath his waterbed. The police were like, okay, then what? What was your plan now that she's dead? He's like, well, I didn't really have a plan. I didn't think that far. So Josh was able to sleep all week on that bed. Seven nights he slept on that bed. He never slept on the couch. He never slept on the ground. He never slept with his parents. He slept on top of Maddie's dead, decomposing, stanky body. So eventually, speaking of stank, eventually the body started to smell really, really, really bad. And Josh just kept putting tape on the bed frame because he thought somehow if he could just like close up the gaps between his mattress and the bed frame, that it would like kind of trap the smell and conceal it, but he was very, very wrong. So Josh was also constantly lighting incense in his room to mask the smell, which I don't know if y'all have smelled incense, but like they're not, I mean, some smell good, yes, but having like 10 of them up mixed with a dead de decomposing body. And he was also spraying like Febreze. His mom mentioned that he sprayed Febreze all the time. So Febreze, decomposing body, incense. All of that sounds like a hot, nasty smell. And that's what was going on in his room. So, needs to say, Josh is right. He had, had, had absolutely no fucking plan. So, Josh even said that he knew there was going to be a day where he would get caught. He was just trying to delay it as long as he could. So, police ask him, all right, so you obviously did it. But Josh, why did you kill him? And he said, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I need some help figuring it out. That was his quote. So let's talk about the crime scene. So to start, like I said, there were air fresheners and incense all over the damn place. There was a baseball bat. There was a Leatherman knife. 
and there were tennis shoes stained with Maddie's blood. As they're rummaging through his stuff, they notice that he had one of Maddie's missing, missing posters hung up on his bookshelf, which is super alarming. So, like, this kind of leads me to believe that there was some kind of, like, thick and twisted motive behind this. There was also blood on the ceiling fan that was about eight feet off the floor, and DNA analysis showed that it was, in fact, Maddie's blood. So, this just showed everybody that they that Josh had really hard blows and that there was a super intense attack. They also found the photo of Jessica that was stolen from her house, as well as other photos, all containing her in a leotard doing some sort of gymnastics. One of them in particular was her doing a backbend. They also found pairs of panties of the sisters and they were taken in for DNA and they were the sisters. He had stolen them while he would sneak into the family's home. So, obviously, Josh has some weird, crazy obsession with these two girls. So, the police obviously are like, we got our guy. He admitted to it. It's him. So, let's talk about the trial. And this is, like, kind of where it gets crazy. So, on November 17th, 1988, State Attorney Harry Shorstein announced that Josh would be tried as an adult for his crimes. And this is kind of what everybody was hoping for so that he could get life in prison if Josh was tried as a juvenile, he could have only gotten like four to five years and he could have been out by the age of 19. Now, Florida will usually give the death penalty for something like this, but because of his age, they said that the max that he could get was life without the possibility of parole. So the medical examiner confirmed that there were three or two separate attacks. The first time when she was hit on the head with the bat repeatedly, the second time was the stabbing in the neck. And then the third was the stabbing to the chest. But the crazy thing is, he couldn't confirm the exact order. So he is confirming, yes, all of these events happened, but he couldn't tell you exactly in chronological order how they happened. Now, the debate is, is if the chest stab wounds were post-death. The medical examiner, examiner said, quote, I'm pretty sure that the chest stab wounds, those nine times, were after she was already dead. It was most likely post-mortem. But Josh claimed that that was entirely false because she had made the noise under the bed. So some people think either he felt like he heard something, so he stabbed her and killed her, but some people think that he was just wanted to do a little bit more. Why? Because he was just really into that torture, like based off of his search history. So some people think that there was three separate attacks and she was stabbed after he heard something. But some people think, you know, based off all the nasty stuff they were finding on his computer, all the photos that they had found of the sisters, that he was just a freaky, kinky, nasty little shit. And that he just continued to stab her after death just because he was into that tortured bullshit. So people were asking, well, what was the motive? Because none of this made sense. So how do you hit a little girl with a baseball and then you think, well, now I got to kill you and stuff you under my waterbed? Like people in the jury were like, this doesn't make sense. Like why, 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 why? So naturally a lot of the trial was focused on the motive because it just didn't make sense. Obviously no one's debating the injury. No one's debating the murder. Like the murder happened. He confessed. Everybody knew that it was him, but it was like, what is the motive? Is what he is what he's saying really true? Are his parents so strict that he was that scared and killed her? 
Or is it because he's watching this violent, nasty porn and he's just some sort of like sick and twisted child and wanted to act this out on his own? So now it got a little bit more confusing because the doctor did find allegedly several frontal lesions on Josh's frontal lobes of his brain, which a lot of the time can explain violent outbursts in teenagers because the frontal lobe hasn't fully developed. If you've got these lesions there, it can make you like a little bit sporadic and violent and unpredictable is what he said. But and the defense attorney did want to use this evidence in court and be like, hey, this is probably why this happened. Do you think that this is something that a normal 14 year old would do? No, he's not normal. His brain's not normal. Like you, you know, give him a break. However, the doctor who found this did not want to get involved. He did not want to testify. So they didn't use this evidence because at the end of the day, the fact of the matter is Josh killed Maddie for no reason. And he admitted to it, regardless of how or why he admitted to this horrible, horrible crime. So on July 8th, 1999, the jury found Josh guilty of first degree murder after deliberating for two hours. They sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And the judge told him, quote, I do not perceive you to be a child. You're a monster and your monster act makes you an adult. The judge continued and said, quote, I am certain on your judgment day that you, Joshua Earl Patrick Phillips, will be given even a harsher sentence that I, than I could ever impose. So he's basically saying like, dude, you're a sick, nasty little fucker and you're going to hell. <laughs> so eventually Josh went on and he was tr and he tried to appeal his sentence. And this is like what the judge had to say, which kind of confirms in a lot of people's mind that this isn't the true story, which Josh told. So he said, quote, this is the judge. He said, quote, I think if you look at the evidence as it was developed and some of this was developed after the trial and not actually even used in trial, I think there is substantial evidence to believe Maddie was lured over to the Phillips home by Josh. She was not supposed to be there and there was no particular reason in the evidence that shows that she wanted to be there or interacted with him or went into his house. It looks as if this is a sexually motivated case where the defendant lured Maddie in with the sexual motive involved. And that's what the judge said. So the new speculation and theory that a lot of people have is that he was raking the leaves, like he said, or he had watched this porn. And I guess he was like, you know what? I want to act on this. So Maddie had gotten to get the golf balls and she was running back to Larry Grissom's place. And Josh like stopped her and was like, hey, Maddie, come here. You know, I want to show you something or something along those lines. And he lured her in. They think that he lured her into his house to commit the crime. And I don't think like that the hitting on the head, like with the bat was like to stop her from crying. I just think he used it to just hurt her. And I think either he had like molested her and wanted her to shut up about it. Or he realized after he assaulted her, like, oh, well, I just molested her. She can't go home. She's going to tell everybody. And then he just kind of decided to kill her. But who knows? A lot of people did not think it was just because he was scared of his father. Because that just sounds so absurd. You're so scared of your father that what he's going to do that you, because you hit her with the baseball. Well, what the fuck is he going to do that you killed her? I mean, I feel like your father is now going to like be way more upset with you that you killed somebody as opposed to just hurting somebody. So that's my theory. I think it was very sexually motivated and I think he lured her in. 
But anyways, in 2002, he appealed saying that this was a violation of his Eighth Amendment and life sentencing for a 15-year-old was considered cruel and unusual punishment. So he appealed the sentence and the judge was like, nope, I stand by the sentencing. Thank you. Goodbye. Go back to prison. But in an August of 2017, his case made it back to the fourth judicial of the U.S. Supreme Court for a second look as mandatory life sentences without parole are now deemed unlawful for juveniles. So back when he was originally tried, that was not the case. But in 2017, it was unlawful for anybody to give a life sentence to juveniles. So at this time, a lot of the inmates from all across the nation that were sentenced for life for murder as juvies were now appealing their sentences. But at his resentencing at the Duval Duval County Courthouse, Josh took the stand and he did apologize to Maddie's family. He said, quote, I do understand pain. I have become quite intimate with suffering. Growing up in prison, I've seen many dark things and I've been in some dark, dark places. I did something horrible and I am so sorry. Even now, after all of these years, it is just so unfathomable that all of you, to all of you, that this could ever have occurred. I'm in shock. It tears my mind to know that I stole such a precious life from you, from the world. I wish I could take your pain away, but I can't. I'm very incredibly sorry. So Josh did that and he appealed his sentencing and he was resentenced though to life in prison once he appealed in 2017. So, but he is eligible to reappeal again in 2023. So next year. So just a little bit about Josh um, in prison. So he is considered, quote, a model inmate. He is Buddhist. He teaches courses um, for inmates to get their GED, and he has an above average IQ. He teaches science and math to other inmates and apparently has a ton of remorse and has apologized profusely by letters and interviews to the Clifton family. Um, they even said he works as like a clerk. So he has a lot of jobs. He's teaching people. Um, he's doing the best he can in prison. But the next time the court will see him is in 2023. So that is the case of the waterbed murderer, which is insane. We don't even have waterbeds now. And at first when I read this, I thought someone, I thought they were going to say that he put her body like in the water of the waterbed and she's kind of like floating in it like a soup, which made me want to gag. But that's not the case, obviously. But speaking of that, it reminded me, I did see this story of this lady who like died in her hot tub in her backyard. And I guess she like passed out or she hit her head. So her body was like sitting in this hot tub for a week. Like nobody found her. And eventually like the neighbors smelled all the smell and they go back there and the body of this lady is just like soup in this hot tub. And when the people came to like pull her out, her skin just fell off because the hot water had like cooked her kind of like a when you cook a pot roast or something. <laughs> Ew, I'm comparing a dead body to a pot roast, but her skin just kind of came off. So when I th heard the waterbed murder, I don't know why I thought of that and nearly wanted to gag. But yeah, that's the story of Maddie and the waterbed murder. I will post this tomorrow morning and you can see all of the photos. I will post the photos of Maddie. I'll post the photos of Josh and all the other crazy photos so that you can see it on our Instagram at Misery Manor Podcast. Um, please, if you can, rate 
review, subscribe. Um, your feedback is very well appreciated. You can email us any crazy stories that you want to hear. We are always open to new ideas. And we do have a large list of cases that we want to cover. But please send us anything that you want to hear or anything that you find in the media that you think we should just like touch on a little bit. We would be glad to do that. So thank you so much for listening. We might, I might have an episode for you Thursday. Um, I'm going to get back in the swing of doing two episodes a week. We've just been super busy with work and like things coming up. Um, but I am going to get into the routine of doing two a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But Emily should be back next week. Like I said, send her all your good vibes, your love so that she could have a speedy recovery. And I guess I should have mentioned this in the beginning. She doesn't feel bad. She's just kind of have like a sinus infection. So, um, she feels fine. She's just going to rest. She's able to work from home. So she's all good in the hood. All right. Bye, miserable bitches.